Greetings and welcome back to another ongoing series of Shirim Dafyomi. This is our last podcast, Masachet Babakama, or the first segment of Masachet Nizikin. We are in the tenth and final chapter of Babakama, uh, the eighth Mishnah, which is on Kuf Yorchet Amur Aleph. This Mishnah will deal with requirement of notification to the uh, victim of theft that his item has been returned. Uh, at what point the Ganav no longer has responsibility for the welfare of the item uh, once he's returned it. If somebody stole a lamb from the flock and then he returned it, <coughs> so the assumption here is that the owner knew about the theft, did not know about the return, and then subsequently the animal either died or was stolen by someone else, the original Ganav is liable. If the owners never knew about the theft nor about the return, and then they subsequently counted the flock and everything was there, then patur. So the simple way to read the Mishnah is that in case they never knew about the theft and then you put the animal back and they counted, so you, you never notified them that you returned it, and they counted the flock and they were all there, you're done. And then your patur, if something happens afterwards. We're going to find four different opinions about how to read the Mishnah. Amarav. Ladat dat, dat minyan poter. Rav says, if it was stolen and the fellow was aware of the theft, then you need to notify him when you return it. If he did not know about it, then he, when he counts it, your patur. And he has to be aware that it's back, but not, you don't have to notify, it has to be aware that it's there. But he, he doesn't have to know that it was stolen and returned. So therefore, the end of the Mishnah that says if he counted the uh, flock and it was all there is only referring to the second case where he was not aware of the theft. Shmuel says any time that he counts and finds it complete, you're off the hook. Even if he knew about the theft, didn't know that you returned it, but he counts it, they're all there, that's good enough. Therefore, the the end of the Mishnah refers to both cases of Dat and Shalola Dat. Rabbi Yochanan Omer, Ladat Minyan Poter, Shalola Dat Afil Minyan Amilot Tzarich. Rabbi Yochanan raises the entire thing one bar, really lowers it one bar, and says, if the guy knew about the theft, then when he counts, you're Patur. If he never knew about the theft, he doesn't even need to have a count. Because if you took it out of the flock, and then you returned it, and he never counted, and later on that animal got taken, you're off the hook because he never knew about the theft. And therefore, therefore, when the Mishnah has at the end the notion of counting, that's referring really back to the first case where he knew about the theft. Ravchista turns Rabbi Yochanan inside out. He says, I agree with you that if he knew about the theft, then when he counts his patur, if he didn't know about the theft, it, of account is not enough, you have to tell him that it was stolen. So he agrees with Rabbi Yochanan that Minyan Poter is only a comment on the Reisha, but he disagrees diametrically with Rabbi Yochanan because he says that if he did not know about the theft, then you have to tell him about the theft. What's the reason? So I'm a Rava, my Tamad Rav Chista. Now remember, Rava is not just giving, you'll see, Rava is not just giving Rav Chista's reason, he's identifying with his Psak. And says, what's the reason for it? Because after all, Rav Chista is the hardest read in the Mishnah. He says, Since the animal is used to wandering out, and the master doesn't know about it. Because if the master knew about the theft, 
So he knows that, that it was stolen, and now he counts and he's all there. He knows that particular animal has to be watched, or they all have to be watched because they're used to wandering elsewhere. They're used to other pastures. But if he never knew about the theft, then you have to notify him, because otherwise how is he going to know that that particular animal now has to be watched more carefully because it's used to wandering. Okay. When we are my Rav Hachi, again, Rav is adopting of Chis' position, so since, Rav, since when does Rav say that you have to notify him fully? If a guy sees another fellow stealing from his own flock, and he yells after him, and the guy throws it to the side, and the, and the owner doesn't know if it was returned, and then subsequently the animal dies or is stolen by someone else, the ganav is still, uh, is still liable. So you see that, that Rav Chista's take, which Rav adopts, which is that if he knew about the theft, minyan is enough, he doesn't seem to hold from. Isn't, aren't we talking about a case where the owner counted the flock and found them all to be there and nonetheless the God of his liable? It's talking about where he didn't count the flock. And so then it works out perfectly that if he knew about the theft but subsequently neither was notified about the return nor counted the flock, then the, the God of his liable. Now, since when does Rav say <coughs> that you need to notify if he knew about the theft? That was the first approach we had. If you returned the, you stole an animal and you returned it to a flock in the desert, yatsa. I mean, you just stuck it back in, yatsa. So, that Rav here is talking about a particularly striped kind of animal or something like that where the shepherd immediately recognizes that he has been brought back and it's almost like notifying, which is important because it means that Rav's statement about notification is not so much one of contrition and asking mechila, etc. It's just really making sure that the fellow knows it's back. So if there's another way to let him know that it's back, so for instance, it's a particular animal that you that is unique and recognizable and once it's back in the flock you see it, that's good enough. Now, Lemekatanoi, perhaps this entire notion of dot, of having to notify for a proper return, is Machlokatanaim or Bishwan Rukiva. So we're going to find that mixing these two things together is going to confuse us if you steal an animal from the flock or you steal a coin from a money pouch. Bishwan says, put it back where you stole it from. That's it. Rabbi says, no, you have to notify the owner. Now, Savrua, we assume to Kuli Rabbi Yitzchak. Everybody accepts Rabbi Yitzchak's premise, which is people are checking their money pouches at all times, which means automatically there's going to be a minyan. If you put it back in the thing, he'll know. My love Aren't we talking here about a case where you stole the coin and the guy knew about it because everybody's always filling their money pouch and he knows that it's missing? So then it's the machlok at Rav and Shmuel with a minyan poter bedat. Remember, Rav said that if you stole and the guy knew about the theft, you have to notify him about the return. And Shmuel said, no, if he counts and he finds it's all there, that's good enough. And that would be the machlok at Rabbi Shmuel and Rekiva. The answer is, lo, bitzlei shaloladat. We're talking about a, a, uh, an animal that was taken, shaloladat. And remember, if an animal was taken or anything was taken, shaloladat, whether or not you have to notify him at all, Rabbi Yochanan said you don't have to notify him at all, or whether you have to give full notification, all right, then that would be Rabbi Yochanan. Okay, I'm Rav Zvid Rav. Rav Zvid has a different take on that machloket. If you have somebody who stole from the possession of the owners, 
Everybody will agree with Rav Chista that you have to notify him, even if he didn't know about the theft, you have to notify him that it was stolen. If a Shomer is holding on to an animal and he steals it from the area where he's holding for the other guy, into his own area, can he put it back into that area without telling the owners? So, uh, the reason is, Rabbi Kiva Savar, Rabbi Kiva holds, you're done being a Shomer. The minute you took it for yourself, you're not a Shomer anymore. Now you're a Ganav. Which means you're going to put it back. You've got to notify him. Uh, Rabbi Shmuel Savar, Rabbi Shmuel says, you're still a Shomer. You moved it from one corner, you moved back to the other corner. Is that all right. Well, that would, of course, take our, that machloket totally out of the realm of our issue. Lema, so perhaps, minyan poter tanaihi. Maybe the issue of minyan poter, meaning that when the original owner counts his flock or counts his money and finds it all to be there, you're now off the hook, is itself a machloket tanaim. Let's say you stole from somebody. You want to return it, but you're embarrassed. So the way you do it is, you make a cheshpan with him for something else, and you add in the extra coin, kind of quietly sneaking it in. Tani So it's too bright. One says you don't say of returning it. The other one says you're not. Now, we assume that both sides of the bright accept Rabbi Yitzchak's premise about feeling your money pouch, which would mean which means it's all ladat. My love, so isn't the machlok at this? So that means this gneva was ladat. The owner knows it's gone. And so therefore the one who says yatsa holds like Shmuel, which is that minyan poter, even when it's ladat, when he counts afterwards and finds it all there, you're off the hook. And the other one holds like Rav that says if he knew about the theft, it's not enough that he counts afterwards, you have to notify him. So the answer is no. Amri poter. We see it hold like Shmuel that if we really held like Rabbi Yitzchak, that the guy would be counting all the time, which means he knows about it. Then minyan certainly poter. El Rabbi Yitzchak The machloket is about Rabbi Yitzchak. Mari that Rabbi Yitzchak. Mari that Rabbi Yitzchak. And the way to pa- pa- parse this is that <coughs> the one who says yatsa accepts Rabbi Yitzchak and says therefore the guy is aware of it, which means you automatically have a minyan poter. And the one who says, Lo yatsa, does not hold from Yitzchak, says he's not only counting it, or vice versa. That the one who holds like Rabbi Yitzchak says that, Lo yatsa, because that means, uh, since he was counting it, then the Gneva is Ladat, and therefore you really have to notify him. And the one who, sa- who does not accept, um, how do you call it, who does not accept Yitzchak, would say yatsa because he never knew about the theft, therefore yatsa. But the first way is preferable, based on the earlier piece of the Gemara. Okay. Um, it's possible that everybody accepts Rabbi Yitzchak, then both sides of the Brayta. If the money is put into the pouch, or if the money is put into the fellow's hands. In other words, if the money is put into... <clears throat> if the money is... Um, is put into the hands of the guy, then um, then it could be that then he takes it and puts it into his own safekeeping box and didn't count. Remember, you were mavliya b'cheshbon. You gave him $100. You snuck in another coin, so it's really 110 to make up the 10 you lost, as an example. If he didn't put it into his money pouch, he might have put it directly into a safe box. He didn't count it, and then loyatsa. On the other hand, if he put it directly into his money pouch, or that's why you gave it to him, then he would count it, and then yatsa. It could be both cases are in the in the keys. 
Right? If he had other money in there, then he doesn't know how much. So when you put it in, he's not going to be able to count. But if he had nothing else in there, and this is all he puts in, he'll feel it, and he'll know how much is in there. Again, the main issue is, is he aware that it's been returned? Okay, next Mishnah. And from here, really, to the end of the Masachet, we're dealing with the problem of buying things from artisans, uh, which are the kind of materials that the artisans deal with, and the concern that they may... Have, they may have been leftover pieces that really do not belong to them, or byproducts, or even the products themselves that they're supposed to be watching uh, or working with uh, that they have absconded with. Now, you can't buy wool or milk or kids from shepherds. You're not allowed to buy from people who watch orchards, uh, wood, or fruit. You're allowed to buy garments from women, and specifically wool garments in Yehuda, and flax garments in Galil, it's sort of the things they work with. Look in the fifth parak of Tubot to talk about the Malachav women. Also, if, in the Sharon, you can buy calves from them. And the reason is, in every one of these areas, that's the sort of thing that the husbands have the wives work with, and then are happy that they sell them to bring money into the house. But any time that they say, take it and hide it, then immediately you know you can't buy it from them. Anywhere you are, you can buy you can buy uh, eggs or chickens anywhere. Okay, you can't buy goats or kids from the shepherds. You can't buy um, packets of wool or tufts of wool. But you can buy already sewn things because that belongs to them. That's their own stuff they're selling. Out in the in the in the desert, in the uninhabited areas, you can buy um, um, uh, milk and other byproducts, milk and cheese of the goats, but not in the city. The reason is because out there the Balim don't expect to get it. They allow the shepherds to keep it uh, out in the midbar. You can buy four or five sheep, or four or five packages of wool, not two. So, of course, we have two questions on the numbers. One is, if you mention four, why do you mention five? And the second thing is, what happens to three? You can't buy two. Obviously, you can't buy one. You can buy four or five. You can obviously buy six or seven. What happened to three? The, the clearer implication here is, and we'll get the rule in a minute, uh, is that uh, the more that you buy, the more likely it is that the owner knows about it, and therefore the shepherd wouldn't be selling it unless he really had the rights to. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Beitot Midbariot and You can buy um, domestic animals, but not wild animals. We'll see what he's referring to. What's the rule? Anything the shepherd sells and the uh, owner is aware of, man that you could buy, because, you know, he's not going to sell unless he has the rights to. Ain Margishbo, but if it's a small amount, or depending on location, the owner will not be aware of it, man then you really cannot buy it from them. Now, Amarmar, let's go back to the Ibrahita. Lokhinman, Dalad Vehetso, and Dalad Vehegizin, we said you could buy four or five. So that's one of the questions on the numbers. If you can tell me you could buy four, so certainly you can buy five. We know that the more, the easier it is to, the more likely it is to buy. Once you can buy four, you can certainly buy five. Rav Chista says, it's not four or five, it's four out of five. Meaning, 
if he sells you uh, 80% of the flock, then you know that the, the owner is going to know about it, and they couldn't do that unless he's really trying to sell it. The owner is. Rav Chista may have had another solution, which is it's four or five, meaning from a small flock, whatever a small flock may be, four is enough. If it's a large flock, four he might not notice, but five will notice. Then we have the other problem I raised. So you said that four or five is okay, which means three is not okay. But you said, but not two. So three is good. So how do you answer it? If they're healthy animals, then already three he would notice. And therefore you could buy three. If they're weak animals, he won't notice until there's four. So therefore you can't buy unless there's four. So the Tana wanted to give us a clear-cut thing. You can always buy four or more. You can never buy two or less. Three, it depends on the animals. Now, Rabbi Yudo Mer, Beitot Lokhinmehan, Midbariot in Lokhinmehan. He said you could buy domestic, but not wild animals. You buy a luhu. Rabbi Yudo, Reisha Kayu Luchumra, Udilma Seifa Kayu Lukula. Is Rabbi Yehuda referring to the Reisha that said four or five? And he's being machmer and saying, even the four or five that you said you could buy, that's only wild animals, but not domestic. Or is he referring to the Seifa that says, but you could, and he can't buy two, and he says, well, that limitation of two only refers to the wild ones. Domestic, you could even buy two. Let's see. <clears throat> So exactly what I just re- represented. So Toshma is the solvent. Tatanya, we have a bright that says Rabbi Yehuda Omer Lochin beitot mehan vein lochin mehan midbariot. You can buy domestic and not uh, and not uh, wild. But anywhere you could buy four or five, which means you could buy four or five uh, wild. And that means domestic, you could even buy less, you could even buy two. So you can see that he was referring to the Seifa, and he meant it Lakula in a lenient form, meaning you could buy even less than, you could buy two or one, if they're domestic, Shmamina. Uh, okay, then we said you can't buy from uh, fruit uh, watchers. Shomre Perot. Now, Rav Zavin Shaveshta Miarisa. Rav bought some uh, grapevines from a sharecropper. The Mishnah says you can't buy from gar- people who guard uh, fields, who guard uh, orchards. So Rav said, it can't be Rav, of course, it must be Rav or Rabba, uh, as opposed, um, because Abai wouldn't be talking to Rav. <coughs> There's too much time between them. So uh, it's either Rava or Rabba bought this. Abaya challenged him and said, "We have the Mishnah that said you can't." And he answered back, That's only referring to a Shomer who has no ownership of the land. The sharecropper owns some of the land. He doesn't. He's not a titled owner, but he has a, an ownership of some of the harvest. Perhaps he's selling his own stuff. Tanu Rabbanan. So let's see. Shomrei Peirot. Lokhin mehen kshehin yoshvin umachrin. Slein lefehem. Turtani lefehem. You can buy from them when they are sitting uh, with baskets and scales and all of that in front of them. In other words, uh, it's clear that they're doing business here and the owner would certainly not let them do that unless he was, they, they were selling for him or they'd bought the rights. 
But again, every time, if they turn around and say, yeah, take it and hide it, then you know it's Asur. You can buy from them if they're in front of the Gina, but not in back. In other words, as long as context seems to indicate that they are really uh, selling legitimately, then it's okay. But um, <clears throat> but if not, then then you can't. Um if you know somebody's a gazlan, at what at what point can you buy stuff from him? Now Ravamar until you know that most of the stuff he owns is his own legitimately, till then you can't buy. Shmuel says no, even if a minority of this, uh, some of the stuff is his, you can still buy and assume that what you're buying is really his legitimately. Orele Rav Yehuda la Ada Daila, Ada who was a servant, Rav Yehuda instructed him, Kidivramar Afilum Yuchalo. He he passed like Shmuel, and he told Ada, you can buy from these particular guys on him as long as you know that some of what they own and some of what they're selling really is theirs legitimately. Now, we're going to deal again, as we did in the previous podcast, with a Moser, somebody who hands over money of uh, a fellow Jews to appease the the uh, the heathens that are oppressing. What happened? He himself, his life is forfeit. What happens to his money? Mamon Masur. We don't know who said what, but these famous two second generation Amoraim said one said that you can destroy his money, and the other said, no, you have to maintain it for the estate. The one who said you're allowed to destroy it, his money shouldn't be any more valuable than his life. His life is forfeit. The reason you're not allowed to destroy it is because he might have good kids. The Rasha prepares stuff and the Tzadik wears it. In other words, this guy's a Rasha, but he made some money. Let his child, the Tzadik, uh, benefit. This is a very difficult passage. Since Rav Chista had a particular sharecropper that used to weigh and give, weigh and take. Uh, and Rav Chista got rid of him. There's clearly something untoward going on. So, one approach that Rashi suggests is that he was very, very, very careful of taking exactly his portion, and he was not willing to to be flexible with it at all. But that's a little bit difficult, because he's standing on his rights. The other possibility is that he was taking exactly, and this is the Rashbah, Rashi quotes of the Rashbah likes this, is he takes... He was taking half, which is way more than his portion. He was an out-and-out goslin. Uh, the marshal suggests something else, but um, we'll read it that way, that he was really taking far more than he should have. Salke, Rav Chista fired him. Kara Nafshe, he said about his pasuk, V'tzafun tzadik chel chotei. The tzadik, the wealth made by the sinner is waiting for the tzadik. Kimatik v'atchanev ki v'atzei ki yeshel aloha nafsho. This... This now leads us to some discussion, and this is, remember, there's no Agadah that ends Baba Kama, because Baba Kama is really not the end of Masachet. Um, nonetheless, this is sort of the, uh, the, the ultimate piece, the last piece of Agadah, which refers to issues of Geneva, and it's a very short piece. Um, what is the hope of somebody who is a, uh, is a, of a thief, that God will take his soul? Now, whose soul are we talking about? It's the soul of the person who was the victim. The soul of the thief. This is what people who steal, 
do? They take the life of the person who owns the thing. The thief, who don't steal from a poor person. Don't oppress the poor man in the gate. God will fight their battle and will take and will steal the soul from those who steal from them. So it sounds like this, the soul that's being corrupted, that's being hurt here, is the soul of the thief. All right. So now each one has to has to address the other one's pasuk. The pasuk in Mishlei. So my balav balav dahashta. Nefesh balav doesn't mean the owner, the soul of the owner. It's so it's the soul of the current owner. I mean the guy who now has the stuff. <coughs> the pasuk later in Mishlei, the two pasukim. Matam kamar. So kavakovim nefesh is not saying it's going, he's going to steal the soul of the ones who hurt them, but rather matam kavakovim. Why is God going to steal from these people? From the kavim nefesh because they stole a soul. In other words, whose soul is really suffering in a theft? The victim or the predator? He's clearly taking a position on this. Anybody who steals from somebody, even a shavapruta, is like stealing a soul. He takes the same pasuk from Mishlei. In a curse reminiscent of Parshat Kitavo, that's in Yirmiyahu. He's, he takes your harvest and your food and he chill your children. And now we go to a pasuk in Yoel that talks about Hamas. Hamas is, of course, not theft, but it is sale under duress, where somebody forces someone to sell and probably undersell. This is a very strange piece. I'll get to it in a minute when the Gemara addresses it. The quite the Gemara's surprise about this Brita is why it brought all these psukim, why Riochan, sorry, why brought all these psukim to support the idea that a uh, person who steals steals and harms the soul of the and the very life of the uh, of the victim. So my Viomer, why all these psukim? So go back to the Pasuk, the first Pasuk that we had. So that only tells me the guy himself was the victim. How do I know that his children also are considered to be... His children's lives are hurt from that. Therefore we have the Pasuk uh, from Yirmiyahu. Maybe that's only if he stole and didn't pay anything. Maybe if he steals but he pays a little something for it. Uh, that then then it's not considered really hurting somebody. Therefore, we have the pasuk in Yoel that talks about Hamas. Maybe that's only if you actually stole or did something active. But if you caused financial loss to somebody indirectly, maybe that's not considered really hurting them in that way and hurting their soul or their life. Now, this is, of course, very problematic. In uh, the end of Shuong Bet, in Perk Chafalif, there's a story about a famine for three years. And David asks Hashem, where is this famine? And Hashem answers back that the famine, is the last pasuk quoted on the page, that because of Shaul al-Bet Adamim, Hashem ita the Givonim, because of the blood that Shaul caused for killing the Givonim. Chazal here are playing with the, word, the fact that the word Damim uh, in, in rabbinic Hebrew also is a reference to money. So this Damim Tarti Mashba is going to be a play on this. And the problem, of course, is that nowhere in 
Tanakh is there mention of Shaul hurting the Givonim in any way. And this becomes a very large issue and a very big problem because David goes and takes seven members of Shaul's lineage who are left and, and kills them to appease the Givonim and the famine is over. It's a very difficult passage. But one of the difficulties, of course, is where did it ever say that Shaul did anything bad to the Givonim? Remember, one of the worst, perhaps the worst thing that Shaul ever did was the terrible massacre of the city of Kohanim because of his paranoid suspicion that Achimelech, the head of the city, had been helping David based on the, uh, on the falsified report of Doeg HaDomi. So, uh, as a result, Shaul wiped out the entire city of Nov, and Nov was a city that would buy its uh, supplies from the neighboring city, Nov and Givon are, are neighboring hilltops, um, that they would buy from the Givonim. So look how far we're going to go, that Shaul massacred Nov, Nov was then desolate, the Givonim lost a major part of their Parnassah, which they would sell, food and water to the, to, to the people of Nov. As a result, Shaul is considered to have killed people from Givon and there needed to be an appeasement. Okay, the, uh, the rest of the Mishnah said, hanashim. You can buy those garments from the women and the calves, etc. Like our Mishnah. You cannot buy wine or oil or flour. The concern is these are all things that she's given to run the household. She wants to make a little extra money for herself. She goes out and sells them, but not hers. Belong to the husband. You can't buy this stuff from slaves or from kids, because again, they're putting their hand literally into the cookie jar and taking stuff out to sell it so they can have their own money, but it's not theirs. A woman could sell stuff even for a few dinar, can also keep in order to make a nice fancy covering for her head, a hat. In other words, her husband would like her to sell some of the household goods uh, and doesn't mind if it, she's going to do something good with it. So he's more lenient on that. But again, we keep coming back to that. When somebody says, take it and hide it, then that's contextually, it tells you that this is not a legitimate sale and you shouldn't buy it. can collect from uh, from uh, women uh, a small amount but they can't take a large amount if it's small and large we're going to see is uh, is, um, uh, is uh, relative uh, people who work in olive presses you can take, you can buy from them serious measures of olives or of oil they get the same problem. You can't buy small amounts because the concern is that they got somebody else's olives that they're working on and they took a little bit off for themselves and they're selling it and that's not right. In the upper Galil where they're a rich olive area certainly in the western Galil you can buy um, zeitim from women uh, around Sukkot time um, um, because sometimes a man is embarrassed to sell in front of his own house, but he needs the money. He's got olives. He asks his wife to go out and sell. So that's the assumption here. Ravina came to Be'machuza. Ramu Kame Kavli 
Women came out to greet him, and they gave him all sorts of fancy jewels to put into his sucker box. Kavaminai accepted it. Amalei Rava Tosfa Ravina. So Rava said to him, Rava Tosfa said to him, Gabayt Staka are not allowed to collect from women a large gift, because the assumption is that it doesn't belong to them. Right? He says, for this city, that's called a small thing. In other words, uh, that's not called a big gift. It's all relative, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. And now to the final Mishnah, which is Mishnah Yod, um, which is uh, at the bottom of Kuf Yod Ted Amur Aleph. Mochin sham shehakoves motzi. Again, we're dealing with artisans. Uh, before, we were dealing with issues of gana of Here, we're dealing with artisans and materials that they have, and what part you're allowed to buy from them. And in other words, what part they're allowed to keep. Therefore, you can buy from them. Mochin shakoves motzi. If you have the um, uh, pieces of wool or material that are inside of um, of particular garments, and a launderer ends up um, bringing them out, uh, having them come out in the process of his work, that belongs to him. But somebody who's combing wool, that goes to the balabite. As we'll see later on, all of this is a description of common uh, custom and uh, is really dependent on local uh, and local um, assumption or, should we say, the spirit of the contract. Um, a launderer t- takes out three um, strings, three threads from the top of the garment, and those are his, because those are things that are really there to protect the garment. If it takes more, then it belongs to the balabite. If clearly it didn't belong on the garment, the garment was white, and these threads are black, he takes them, they're all his. Again, important note to understand about about this that makes this uh, seem a little bit disconnected from where we are is that um, we're, we're referring to a period in which resources are very scarce and are very valuable, and therefore um, everything uh, uh, takes on a whole different uh, hue as far as as far as its uh, its significance. Uh, and as a result of that, um, even the smallest threads, etc., become a uh, become something to be concerned about. Hachayat, um, how about a tailor? Um, <clears throat> if he left enough of a thread that you could use to sew, we'll see what the shear is. Or he let, left a patch that was three fingers by three fingers. In other words, in taking something in or in sizing it properly. That much was left over, it's got to go back to the Balabite, because it was the Balabite's material. A carpenter who leaves something with a plane or a file or a small cutting instrument, that belongs to him. But if he's using a large axe, Balabite. Balabite gave him some wood, said, make me a chair. The leftover pieces go back to the Balabite. May I say it's a Balabite, often the Sorim, or probably on the Soret, Shabalabite. If he was working, um, at the Balabayit's place, that everything, even the sawdust, belongs to the Balabayit. Nasarim is a little difficult because Nasarim means boards, and that would obviously belong to Balabayit. So Nasorit, which is the gears that Rashi has, is probably preferable. That means the, the sawdust. Tan Rabbanan, You can buy these uh, pieces of cotton or, or, or uh, wool material that come out from inside the, the garment from a Koves, because he has rights to them. 
HaKoreis Latzal Shnei Chutim Elyonim Vein Shalo. In this bright, it says he could take two strings. Remember, we saw three. V'loya Tilbo Yotem Mishlosha Chovin. He shouldn't put more than three holes into the garment. There were holes that they would use to tighten things. He should not comb it lengthwise, but rather widthwise. When he evens out the garment, he evens it out lengthwise, but not widthwise. He can cut up to a tefach to make it even. So let's look at this bright. He said he keeps two chutin. We learned three. So If they're big, strong strings, then he can only keep two. If they're small strings, then he keeps three. We have the opposite, that you should comb it lengthwise and not widthwise. So If it's a, a, a cover, then it has to be widthwise. If it's a sarbal, it's like an outside garment for beauty, so then you have to comb it lengthwise. You shouldn't put more than three of these holes. Tuyvatuyechad is pulling and stretching it, considered to be one or two. So Tuyvatuye trays. The answer is teiku. When you even it out, it's the length and not to the width. And again, Vatanyeipcha, we have the opposite, Brighta. So Lokasha, Maglima, Habehemyone. Depends again on the kind of garment. If it's a myone, it's a belt, then it has to be evened out widthwise. Tanarabaran, Enlokhina, Sorek, Mochim, Neshe, Eno, Shalo. You can't buy. Um, these pieces of material from a Soreka comer, because remember from Mishnah, they're not his. As I mentioned, it's all based on local custom. So in a place in which the local custom is he gets to keep them, you can buy it from him because he has the rights. You could always buy a full piece, uh, meaning like a pillow, that's filled with these tufts. Why my Even if he stole them, he was caught in Bishinui, and now he owes the money to the guy, but the, the item is, is now proper for sale. You can't buy from a, uh, a, a weaver. Lo irin, velo nirin. These are pieces of wool that are left over at the edge of the uh, woof. You could take a full garment, even if it has pieces missing, even if you just have the warp or the woof, Tviva Arig, or if you just have spun wool or woven garment. So Amr Hashi, Tvi, Shakli, if you're allowed to take spun wool, Arugmi Baya, you have to tell me you could take a woven garment? The, the point is that in all of these cases, he was Kona Mishinui. So my Arig, what is the Arig? Techi. It doesn't mean a woven garment of spun wool. What it means is a, um, a woven piece of unspun wool. They used to make little chains out of them. So even though it's unspun, it's woven, that already makes it Vishinui. A dyer who has all sorts of examples that he sells, little samples, um, that are of the color, you can't buy from him. You can take a garment that's dyed. You could take dyed uh, um, uh, spun wool or garments. So hashtat tfi shakob gadim buy the same problem. If you're allowed to buy the spun wool, certainly you can buy garments. So my gadim nimti. Again, this is referring to uh, very simple um, uh, uh, linen garments that aren't spun. If you give um, uh, hides to a tanner, hakitsuin vatlushin are elu shvalabayit. The um, the parts that are um, that are cut off when you're tanning the hide, the parts that are cut, that goes to the balabayit. 
but the stuff that comes up when you soak it in water and is, it comes up, that belongs to him, the little leftovers. Then we said, the uh, koves, if the thread was a black thread or lots of black threads on a white garment, he could take them. It's sort of a play on words. A, a uh, washer is called a katsra in Aramaic. So the idea is he's called a katsra, and he and he's bekatser. He cuts the garment a little bit to make it proper. There's stuff there that shouldn't be there. He cuts it off and he keeps it. He said all of these strings count for the issue of tchelet, meaning tzitzit. Tchelet is a, is a cognomen here for tzitzit. Tzitzit have to be a certain distance from the corner of the beged. He said these strings that stick out are part of it. And therefore, it has to be even further away. So Rabbi Yudah said, my son Yitzchak was very makbid to remove those strings uh, to make sure that the uh, that the beged was done properly. Now, we said in the Mishnah that if the tailor left over some thread, and we didn't say how much of a thread, uh, enough to tie, enough to sew, but what, what does that mean? Then it belongs to Balabayit. Kamalit for. The size of the needle. So, what does that mean? Besides the needle, another one that size, meaning the double the size of the needle. Or does he mean the size of a needle plus an, an anything? Smallest amount. We said if the chayat leaves less than that amount, or a patch that's less than three on three, if the balabite's makpid, you have to give back to him anyways. But if the balabite doesn't care, you get to keep it. Now, if the shear we're talking about is double the size of the needle, I understand that even something less than that could be used for a tiny little patch or something. It's uh, It's got some... Um, some uh, that little hole that we talked about earlier, the chovin, it could be used for something. But if you say that the shear is just the size of a needle plus a tiny bit, and you're saying now less than that is subject to kapeda, what's it worth? So clearly, what the Mishnah means, what the what the uh, what Ravasi meant, means double the size of the needle. That's the shear at which the tailor has to hand it over. Now the Mishnah said, Masha Harash, the, the carpenter, whatever he, uh, whatever the adds, the um, whatever the smaller uh, tool gets off belongs to him, and the axe belongs to the balabayit. The whatever the axe chops off. Here it says that whatever the ma'atzad does goes to the balabayit. Now, Mishnah said it belongs to him. The other tools, then, the answer is that where our Mishnah was written, they had two kind of tools. The big one is called a kashil, a big axe. The little one is called a ma'atzad. In where the brighter was, there was only one tool. They called it a matzad. So therefore, matzad would even refer to an axe. So the halacha is not any different. There, it's just an issue of terminology. All right, the last piece is that if he was working in the Balabayit's place, then everything belongs to him. Tan Rabbanan. Mesatatei avanim. Masons. Ein um, ba'mishum gezel. 
right? They don't, there's no gazel, and whatever pieces come off, that's theirs, and if they sell you pieces, that's fine. These are all people who are pruning trees, um, trees or vegetable gardens or whatever, or or, uh, or seeds and and hoeing, etc. says, I want all that pruned stuff over here. I want that wood. I'm going to make a fire. Then there's gazel. If not, then he gets to keep it. These kind of uh, vegetables that are not um, not very important, they're like straw, and they're like chaziz, they're like, um, uh, it's kind of like hay. Then, ain't the is women gazel. But in a location where people are makpid on it, there is gazel. And Ravina points out that in Matamarsia, they are makpid on it, and therefore, uh, there is a deen of gazel involved. To all the long on a successful completion of the first third of Masachat Nezikin, Bavakama. Uh, in Hashem, in the next podcast, we will begin the second third with Bava Metziah. Uh, but uh, just one comment on, on um, our successful uh, completion of, of Bavakama is that, uh, as we saw way back in the third parak on Daf Lamed, the Gemara said, "Hi, my, hi, man, If somebody is interested in becoming a chasid, truly righteous person, then he should become an expert in avot. Now, some people interpret that as avot referring to perkei avot. Some refer to it refers to the three masachtot that are that begin with avot: masachet Shabbat, avot Hashabbat, avot malachot Shabbat." Avot HaTumah, the Kalim begins with that. And of course, Masachat Nizikin, which begins with Arba Avot Nizikin. But more explicitly, Haiman Mi'boy Lahavi Chasida, should be an expert in Milid Nizikin. Should be an expert in Nizikin. And it sounds like a very strange idea. So Rav Kook in Orot HaTshuvah, I believe it's in Parakei, has a, a, an extremely profound comment about that idea. And he says that if somebody really wants to to come close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that they should study with all of the rigor and all of the depth and the breadth the area of Halakha that we refer to as Choshe Mishpat, essentially what we're dealing with now in Nizikin, criminal and civil law. He says, because once you become attuned to the extremely heightened sensitivity that Halakha has for another person's property and another person's feelings even, as we will see in Bab Metziah, we talk about Onad Dvarim, that will sensitize you uh, appropriately, and it is one of the very many significant paths, uh, the, actually, most, one of the most significant paths of tshuva that is available to us. So, Mir Hashem, we will take the intensity and profundity of the Torah's insights into how we should be sensitive to each other, and sensitive to each other's property, and uh, certainly to each other's uh, persons, that, uh, and, uh, and take the Musaha scale into our daily dealings with each other, and uh, as we move forward and celebrate our study of Torah together, and in the next podcast, we will again, again begin with Bava Metziah. In the meantime, everyone should have a wonderful day.